0: We're going to be in the book of Ruth. If you want to open your Bible to Ruth chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. And we're going to go ahead and read the text, and then I will introduce the the series itself. So, so let's get straight into God's Word. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So what the woman was left with was without her two sons and without her husbands. Let's pray. God, we do ask you for your wisdom, and we ask for as we preach and we teach your word this morning. We pray that as we study the book of Ruth, to you and your character, and the beautiful story of redemption that you are writing, not only here in Ruth, but the story that we will see in Scripture with Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you, Daniel. I want to go ahead and take this off so it doesn't become a distraction. We'll just go ahead and record. Uh, I can't use that handheld my... All right. So let me introduce you to this series. And by the way, we have our work cut out. Uh, we uh, have uh, had the opportunity to have a little bit longer announcements this morning, so you can hear about right now media uh, and prayer. But that leaves us about 20 minutes uh before about 12 so we will uh do our best to handle god's word uh, in an appropriate way but i'm also keeping an eye on the time uh i would just probably tell the worship team we probably won't be able to, to finish with the closing song so we'll just go ahead and finish with the text so we're in the book of ruth ruth is a small book it's a short story we might say and the reason it's important that we're studying the book of Ruth here as a church is that the scriptures make quite clear that as your leaders, we are to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's word. You know that we have spent significant time in the New Testament. We are still in Mark. We, you know that over the summer, we took a, a short break and we actually looked at the book of Ecclesiastes. So a different uh, type of literature. And we've done that the last three summers. We've done Proverbs, we've done Psalms, and we've done Ecclesiastes. We uh, do uh, our best to want to honor God's clear command that the preaching and teaching of His Word would cover not only the Old Testament and New Testament, but also the many different genres of literature that we have in Scripture. And so as we begin, Ruth, know that this is not just an, an incidental or accidental choice is that we as your leaders are very specifically wanting to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's Word and expose you to as much of God's Word as possible. One of the, things that, one of the reasons why that is important to you is this. Many of you will not be at River of Life indefinitely. And when you go and when you find yourself in a new city, one of the primary things that you will look for as the mark of a healthy church is that they preach and teach God's Word and they preach and teach it comprehensively. One of the skills that you need is you need to know when you arrive in a church, am I being fed God's Word? One of the best ways that you can find that out is not only attending, but you can just look at their website, look at their, cat, their, their catalog of sermons, and look and see, are they preaching and teaching New Testament and Old Testament? Are they handling the Word of God in a way that God tells His leaders to handle the Word of God? So we, even before we go into Ruth, you need to know... That the way that we preach and teach is specifically trying to honor what God's Word says about the way that God's Word is supposed to be handled. And it's a skill that you need to take with you. And it's a skill that you can research. There's there's hardly any churches these days where you can't look up and find out, are they handling God's Word? In fact, I know some of you are at River of Life because you first went and checked me out before you ever met me in person, you were meeting me online or Alex or others. And so one of the most important skills that you will have as a believer is to know, how do I find a healthy church? Well, make sure they're preaching the whole counsel of God. And so this morning we pick up with Ruth. Now the title of this series is Finding Restoration and Redemption Under the Wings of God. That's a series title. It's not just a title for today. When we look at the series, this is Finding Restoration and and redemption under the wings of God. Now, that choice of wording is not uh, my own desire to to sound uh, like I have wonderful literary prose, but that under the wings of God is an image that's specifically in Ruth. If you look at Ruth 2.12, we have a beautiful image of Boaz talking, and he, he mentions the fact that uh, Naomi and Ruth, uh, he... he Praise for them that they would find restoration, that they would find uh, God's refuge under the wings of God. It's a beautiful image, and this is the image that I want in your mind as we go through the book of Ruth, is you will find restoration and you will find redemption. Two very important words, and you will see how those words come to play in the book of Ruth, under the wings of God. It tells you where and it tells you who. So finding restoration and redemption under the wings of God. As we look at this series as a whole, there's really two goals that I have as your pastor. And if we look at two overarching goals, the first goal is this, that you would clearly know how Ruth fits into the story of redemption and how it points to God's ultimate rescuer and redeemer, Jesus Christ. When we look at the scriptures... The scriptures are not separate books only, they are separate books, but every single book is telling one big story. That's the story of redemption. It's the story of God's rescue plan. But If we look at the scriptures beginning in Genesis and closing in Revelation, after God creates and man sins, the entire scriptures are a story of God's rescue plan to rescue mankind, to redeem him and to to reconcile him back into relationship. Every single book that we read when we come to God's Word is a story that adds something to that grand narrative. The Bible is one big story. It's God's story. And so when we come to Ruth, Ruth isn't simply a story in and of itself. It's a story that contributes to the grand narrative. What will we learn? We're going to learn about the rescue and redemption, specifically not just in Ruth who the rescuer and the redeemer is Boaz, but it points us to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate rescuer and redeemer. Secondly, we're going to... Uh, my, my hope is that you would be better equipped to read the Old Testament, specifically what we call Old Testament narrative. Ruth is narrative. Uh, when, we, uh, when we finish the sermon, I'll go ahead and post several articles that will help you if you want to equip yourself. One of the most important tools that you will have as a believer in Jesus Christ is the ability to read God's Word. The ability to feed yourself. If if you're dependent on your pastors or your leaders at River Group to constantly be the ones who feed you, we will feed you. But the skill that you need to work out in your own Christian life is you need to be a self-feeder. You need to be able to go to God's Word and know how to handle God's Word on, on a basic level and a growing level for the rest of your Christian life. So if you're interested... On how to read Old Testament narrative, I will post resources, short little articles that will help you. Because as we mentioned earlier, Des mentioned this, we are an equipping church. That's not unique to us. That's what the church does. We equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but we also equip you to, with skills of how to grow in your Christian faith. So we'll be doing that. Now let's, fast, uh, let's move forward to the actual goal of this sermon. I kind of laid some uh, overview of what we're going to come across in the book of uh, Ruth as a whole. Let me land on today's sermon, because the sermon title today is just simply the setting. That's all it is. If you notice verses 1 to 5, we simply get the setting of the story and the actual setting in the location. And what we want to do today is I wanted to introduce you to four keys to unlocking the meaning of Ruth. Four interpretive keys to unlocking the meaning of Ruth. And when we look at those four keys, what we're going to do is kind of look at some some broad brushstrokes. When we look at these four interpretive keys, what we're going to do is look at some of the main themes that you're going to find in Ruth. So this morning we're going to lay that setting, we're going to look at those four interpretive keys, and then at the end of every key we're going to look at what is the broad brushstroke that the author is painting here to help us understand. All right? that outline of those four interpretive keys is this. One, the times. Two, the treachery. Three, the family ties. And four, the family tragedy. The times, the treachery, the family ties, the family tragedy. That's the outline that's going to guide us this morning. And just before we jump into looking at the times, let me quickly give an introduction to Ruth. As we begin a book, it's always important just to to begin with some introductory material to help you understand. I mentioned already that Ruth is the genre, it's a drama, it's a short narrative. And man, is it ever a good one. This little four-chapter book is, uh, like I said, it's a short story. It's one of the most loved stories in all of the scriptures, And not only is it one of the most loved stories, it is a love story on multiple levels. It's uh, also unique because it's a story of everyday people. Much of the scriptures, uh, like we read about Jesus and his disciples, we read about King David. Oftentimes we're reading about uh, those like a Moses or Abraham. We read about those in many ways who don't seem average like us. Now the scriptures make clear everybody has feet of clay besides Jesus Christ. They're average. But Ruth really is an average person in an average everyday place. In a place, first of all, in Bethlehem and then in Moab. And this is why the story is fascinating. It really is the story of the people at the bottom. Uh, and that is a fascinating story for us because many of us can relate. It's like I'm just an everyday person in an everyday world nondescript, just doing my part, working my job, and that's exactly the characters that we find in this story. Now, the date, we don't actually know a specific date. Scholars specifically, uh, if we were to isolate a time, it seems to be written in Solomon's uh, reign. And so when we, we look at the actual date of the book, it's it's certainly written in the time when Israel has a king, most likely written in the time of Solomon. Solomon was David's son. And if you want to get at a date, the book of Ruth as a whole, the events, if you know your Old Testament, death of Joshua, to the beginning of where where Saul becomes king, that is your time period of, of when this story happens. We don't know, so we have... Joshua who took over from Moses. So the death of Joshua, that's about the beginning of this time period of Ruth. And we know the time period of Ruth runs to about when Saul is appointed king. That is your overall time frame. We don't know the author. We believe that the author was was likely a scribe in the royal courts. And if it was written in the time of Solomon, it was likely one of Solomon's scribes. We don't know that man's name, but man, he writes an amazing story, and he's intimately acquainted with Israel's history, and he's intimately acquainted with the royal history. As you'll see, this book will end in a genealogy of David. I've mentioned already that this is a love story. In fact, it's three love stories. If you've read the story of Ruth before, then you know it is a love story, but let me just highlight, it's actually not a singular love story, it's three different love stories all happening at the same time. The first is a love story of loyalty. You're going to be introduced to Ruth. Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and we're going to see Ruth's love and loyalty for her mother-in-law. Secondly, it's a surprising and unexpected love story of Boaz and Ruth. As you we walk through this narrative, you're going to see this amazing love story between Ruth, whose husband had died, who was actually a Moabite woman. She's not from Israel. And she is going to end up married to Boaz. And it's a very unlikely story. The age gap l- looks like it's pretty significant. But there's some, a wonderful story that God is telling where we're going to see this unique word that we often use today, this Redeemer. This is Where does that word originate? Well, it starts here. Here, in the scriptures. Lastly, it's a love story, and this is the most important love story uh, of the entire book. It's the story of God's covenant faithfulness and His love for His own people. God's covenant faithfulness and His love for His own people. Now, one other thing just to mention about Ruth. The name Ruth is, uh, well, one, she is not an Israelite. This is the only book in the entire uh, Old Testament that is named after a non-Israelite. And that gives us a little bit of understanding. It kind of pulls back the, the curtain on the importance of this book. Because this woman, Ruth, who is not an Israelite, is written into God's story of redemption and included in God's story of redemption. And it tells us a little bit about God's amazing heart for the nations that we're going to see None of that is mentioned, but it's so clear, it is not right on the surface. It is certainly woven throughout this amazing book. Alright, enough of the introduction, let's dive right in to our first key to unlocking the book of Ruth, and that is the times. So in verse 1, by the way, when we read Old Testament narrative, one of the things that we'll see, uh, this is, like I, I, I mentioned, I want you to grow in your skills of reading the scriptures. Old Testament narrative is oftentimes very understated. It doesn't come out and tell us many of the things that we might want to know. And this book begins, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now we need you to look at two important aspects of that beginning line. It says that it's the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you know anything about the time of the judges... The Judges ruled at that same time period, right at the end of Joshua, Joshua's death, up until King Saul. And there is a line that repeats over and over again in the Judges, and it says multiple times, and there was no king in Israel. And the book ends with everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When we talk about Judges, Judges was a time period where because there was no king in Israel... Israel is in the promised land, but they've passed on from Moses, they've passed on from Joshua, and now the people are living in the promised land. But let me just tell you, it is some dark, chaotic days. And when we look at this time period, what would often happen is that in the midst of uh, God's people sinning, is that God would raise up what we call a judge. So if you're familiar with Samson, and the story of Samson and his long hair, Samson was... A judge, it was somebody that God raised up to to be a champion for His people. And when we read the story of of um, Gideon, you know, if you know the story of Gideon and Gideon and his fleece, Gideon was a judge. Now they weren't they weren't king over all of Israel. They 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 uh, their influence and impact was not all over Israel. It was very specific stories and very specific places of how God raised up people to be a blessing for his people and to fight for his people. And so when we come to this time of the judges, this is the time period. Now, I want to tell you a story to give you an idea of the time of the judges because the story of Ruth, unless we set it in its proper context and background, I don't think you can understand the chaos and the depravity and the moral decline that we see unless you... Uh, you hear the story. You might be familiar with this story, and just this to this be honest, this is not a kid's story. This is this, The story that I'm about to share begins in Judges chapter 19, and it goes to the rest of the book. It's one of the most bizarre, dark, terrible, uh, sinful stories in the Scriptures. But unless you understand that this story... Is taking place or, or, or had taken place right around the time of Ruth, you won't understand God's amazing providence in the story of Ruth. Here's the story from the time of the judges. Beginning in chapter 19, there's a Levite. If, if you recognize that name a Levite, this is the, this is the, the specific group of men, Levi, or Le, uh, Levi is a tribe, or the tribe of Levi. And this tribe is specifically chosen to be the ones who uh, ministered in uh, the, later the temple, but at first in uh, kind of the, the tent. They were the ones entrusted with, with the, the official worship of Israel. This particular Levite took a concubine. A concubine is a, is a hard word to fully explain in our day and age, it's not a wife. And it's not a prostitute. It is taking a a woman legally, but not giving her the full status of a wife. If you have children with a concubine, her children do not become your heirs. And so right away, the story begins with a corrupt Levite bringing in to his family. So uh, he, he possibly had a wife, and possibly his wife didn't bear children. Could be one reason he took a concubine, or it could have just taken a concubine because he's corrupt, depraved. And, and using her simply for, the, for sexual intimacy. We have no understanding apart from a Levite took a concubine. Well, concubine left him. She was unfaithful. She went and slept with somebody else. She went back home knowing she didn't want to go to her husband. And she went to where? Well, she was actually from Bethlehem. Four months go by and the Levite comes for his wife. And talks with her father. In fact, the language that even calls uh, this man the father-in-law. So there's some kind of marital bond here, even though she's a concubine. And he comes and takes his concubine back. On the way back home, they go to a a place called Gibeah. It's in the land of the Benjamites. And they don't have hotels back then. So he went to the town square and he was taken in by one of the members of the, the tribe. It's very much like the story of Lot. Later that night, the men of Gibeah come and knock on the door. You know how perverse Israel had become? They say, we want that man, we want to sleep with him. The Bible doesn't use that word. It uses an even, uh, I would say, more powerful word, but I think you get the picture. This man instead sends out his concubine. They have their way with her. They leave her for dead. She dies in the morning. The man sees her. He picks her up. He takes her home and he gets to his home and he cuts her body into 12 pieces. And he sends one piece to every tribe of Israel. And he said, Do you want to know what's taking place in our wicked country? He says, The men of Benjamin, the men of Gibeah, did this to my concubine. And the people of Israel are up in arms. And they go to the tribe of Benjamin they say, give up those men who did this. You know what their answer is? Never. And so God's tribes go to civil war. The 11 tribes war against the tribe of Benjamin who are hiding these men who committed this great crime. And the 11 tribes wipe out all of the tribe of Benjamin except for 600 men then they have a problem because now we have one tribe who can't perpetuate its line. So then they come up with a plan. They find a city that's close by and say, you can go steal women and children from this area and call them your own wives. But then they still need 200 more. So they go to the next city and say, you can steal 200 more children or women and make them your wives so that the the tribe of Benjamin can continue. And then the book of Judges ends with this terrible story and it says, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So when this story of Ruth begins, and it says, In the days of the judges, do you understand now how perverse, how dark, how terrible, how sinful things are in Israel? To hear a story like that, that's, that's a terrible, perverse, sexually perverse story. And yet it's in the Scriptures. And guess who? It's not the Canaanites or the Philistines or the terrible people that we think. It's God's own people. That's the beginning of the story of Ruth. And if I didn't lay that foundation, I don't think you could possibly understand that the story of Ruth is taking place in this kind of setting. A perverse, terrible, dark time. The second thing that the Scriptures tell us is that this story... Uh, there was a, a famine in the land. Now, just a word about the famine, because the famine, you need to be connected directly with these times. The scriptures make clear that famine was a promised consequence of God's loving discipline. And when God sent a famine, it was to bring his people back into relationship with him. When they were not following God's commands or when they were breaking covenant with him, God would use a means to bring his people back into relationship. And so when this book of Ruth begins and it says, In the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. There's a very intimate connection. That when God's people are living like this, God sends a famine to get a hold of their attention, to let them know you're not living in a way that I can bless. When we come to Deuteronomy, if, turn if, with me, if you will, or look behind me. Deuteronomy eleven thirteen to 17 it says this. This is after God had given them His laws, and this is part of the blessing and curses. It says, if you will indeed obey my commands that I command you today, to love your Lord your God, and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full." then in verse 16 it says, Take care lest you be de- your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. And so when we open the book of Ruth, we very clearly see we are in the time of the judges, a time of wickedness and sin and debauchery. We also see that we're in a time of famine, where God's response to the way they're living is to send no rain, so that God's people would he would get their attention and they would turn back to Him. The first important theme that I, I want to share with you that we see that we're going to see in the Book of Ruth is that God is faithful to His promises and faithful to preserve for Himself a people. God is providentially at work in the chaos of the times. So although we don't see it now just in the setting, one of the the broad strokes that you're going to see in the book of Ruth is that God is providentially at work in the chaos. I don't know about you, but one of the things that uh, Des and I have said many times, uh, we left the U.S. now almost uh, 13 years ago. And every time that we see the news of back home, one of the things we say is, I don't know if we recognize that place. It seems so different. I don't know if you do this about your own home country. I know I've talked with South Africans who say the same. It is chaos. It's it's amazing how society can begin to gradually degrade. I don't know about where you're coming from, but I would say if we look in general at the Times... Our times are are moving towards, it seems like every nation, we are moving towards times where every nation is moving farther and farther away from God. When we look at the, 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 the way that culture is pushing back on the things that God says are good and right and true. I can't imagine that those who were truly devoted or loyal to God wouldn't have looked around them at the time of Ruth and thought that things were moving in a positive direction. And I can't begin to imagine how they might have been discouraged One of the things we'll see about Ruth is that God is faithful to his promises, and he's faithful to preserve himself a people. Never forget that God is providentially at work in the chaos of the times. And so what we will see in the story of Ruth is in the midst of that wickedness and darkness, God is at work. And we will see a story of his faithfulness. Let's look at the second key to unlocking the book of Ruth. In the second part of verse 1, it says, And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. If you skip to the end of verse 2, I, and it says, They went into the country of Moab and remained there. The second key to unlocking the book of Ruth is the treachery. One of the things that we need to see is how important location is to the book of Ruth. Before we're actually even introduced to the characters, you know, did you see already that we don't even have the names, but he begins to unfold the story, the author begins to unfold the story, and the way he does that is by telling us about the important locations. He's going to mention Bethlehem and Judah, and specifically he's going to talk about this sojourn in the country of Moab. And the fact that the author mentions the locations first is really important. He actually prioritizes us knowing something about the the locations of this book before he even gives us the names. And the setting is going to move from Bethlehem to Moab. And maybe for the modern reader, that doesn't seem like anything very significant. But we're going to see how much significance this really plays. Is it really just a husband leaving Bethlehem looking for food, or is it something much greater? Well, what the author is going to invite us to see is what I call the treachery. And what do I mean by treachery is this, is we need to see, in a sense, how this man, who we'll later find out is Elimelech, turned his back on God and his promises in the promised land and leaves and goes to live in the land of their enemies. Earlier, we saw that there was a famine in the land. And we know from the, the book of, of Chronicles, you, this is probably a verse that all of you are very familiar with, the response that God wants when He sends famine is that His people would turn back to Him. Second Chronicles seven thirteen to 14 says this, When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, and send pestilence among my people. If my people, everybody knows this verse, right? If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. What's not said by the author is something really important that we need to pick up as the reader. What was this man's response, this man who lived in Bethlehem, what was his response to the famine? It was not to humble himself, to seek God's face, to pray for forgiveness. His response to the fact that God had not sent rain was I'll go find food somewhere else. Has, I don't know about you, I'll just pay, throw this out there. I know I have responded like that when God has revealed sin in my life because I didn't want to deal with it. I don't know if you've ever had that response. My, my inkling is, yes, that there have been times where God has showed you sin and it's an invitation to repent, but like Jonah, what do we do? We run the other way. You need to see the treachery in this story. That this man, Elimelech, is going to move his family from Bethlehem, which by the way, this land, this land is the promised land. This is the land that was given to him and his descendants. That this man who we will later find out is Elimelech, actually had a, a piece of land that was specifically his and his family's. It was a part of the, the, the promises of God to bring his people into a land. And he was also with the promised covenant people. And it was in living in the land, when when God's people would live in right relationship, that God would bless their land. And what we have here is a story of a man who decides, I will not follow that pattern. I will choose to leave my land, the promised land, and the promised people, and I will go not just anywhere. What we need to understand about Moab is Moab is not a friendly place. Moab is the land of the enemy who worships a foreign god. So, If you'll take a look, I don't know, have you showed the picture of Bethlehem there, Erica? Take a look. So here's his, here's Bethlehem up there. You can see it's the land of Judah. So Judah is the tribe. Bethlehem is the city. So here's a man of the tribe of Judah. He's living in this place called Bethlehem. And you're going to see that they're going to journey. He's going to journey up and across the Dead Sea and down into the land of Moab. Now take a look. The next picture here should be the the city of Bethlehem. This is what Bethlehem looks like. Beautiful little area. By the way, Bethlehem means the house of bread. Uh, In the city of Bethlehem is wheat, barley, olives, almonds, grapes. Bethlehem was specifically known to be a place of plenty. Literally, it means the house of bread or the house of food how ironic that the house of bread, because of the way they're living, is empty. And the response of this main character is, I will leave the house of bread, I will leave the land of promise, I will leave the promised people, and I will go and venture to the land of Moab. Go to the next slide, because this is the land of Moab. <laughs> Do you notice the difference here? Now, Moab is, is not as Uh, only desert like this, there was about, what they say, about 25 miles of plateau land that was fertile. And this appears to be where uh, this man from Bethlehem, Elimelech is going to be his name, is going to venture. And it says he's going to sojourn. So we clearly see that he's not just going to visit. He has a, a mind, it seems like, where he is going to leave his property and leave his people and he's going to make his new home in Moab. Here's what you need to know about Moab. Once again, we don't have all the details. If you know anything about Moab, it begins with Lot and with his daughters. And remember, after Lot flees Sodom and Gomorrah, God saves their life, but his wife dies, and now his daughters have no husbands. What do they do? They get their dad drunk, they sleep with him, and they have sons. And out of an incestuous relationship, And those sons are the ones who become Moab. So if you want to know about Moab, it's the result of an incestuous relationship from a man who went and lived where? In the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where he was influenced and led away from God. And then they settle in the land of Moab. Moab was an enemy of Israel. And Moab also worshipped a god named Chemosh. They were not uh, uh, worshipers of the one true God, even though they have somewhat of a similar background. They were worshipers of another God. So the second important theme I need you to see in Ruth is going to be return and restoration through Redeemer. Now, not all of that is in the text, but one of the things that you're going to see is the story begins with a man who's leaving, leaving behind his family, leaving behind the promised land, leaving behind a God who he refuses to seek forgiveness from with the rest of his people. And he goes and lives in the land of Moab. The beautiful story, that the, the broad paintbrush that God is going to paint is, this story, despite this man going and making up his mind to go and live in Moab, is going to return to Bethlehem. This man and, and the story that he is writing and the choices that he is making are not going to define his family. God in his grace is going to bring them back. We're going to see... Uh, we're going to see this beautiful return and restoration through a redeemer. The third key. The third key to unlocking the book of Ruth is the family ties, or the family and their ties. Let me work through this quickly. And now introduces us to, it says, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. So we're finally introduced to the family, and let me just share that their names have significance. The name Elimelech means God is my king. How interesting that at the time of Judges, you know that Ruth is taking place in the time of the Judges, the time of the Judges says again and again, and there was no king in Israel, and the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. We have a man whose very name means God is my king, but this man is the one who is running from God being his king and moving to another land. That irony of this is, you would think, this has to be fiction. How could a story be written? Was this name simply given? No, this man's name was Elimelech, and his name literally meant God is my king. The name of his wife was Naomi, and Naomi meant pleasant or sweet. And what we're going to see is how God is going to take those two names, And how those two names, one, God is going to fulfill his promises. And one day there will be a king in Israel. And God is going to take the story of Naomi, which is going to turn tragic. And her name will eventually move from what she says. She said, don't call me Naomi. My name is not sweet or pleasant. Naomi is going to confess in this story. She's called me bitter. Call me bitter. God is going to rewrite her story and her narrative. Naomi will never be able to think of herself or her story in the same way again. Now, one other thing that's important that I said the family ties, because the text specifically not only gives us the name, but it says they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. Now, when we hear that, because we all know the Christmas story, bells should start ringing in our head, that something's very important about not only the, Judah, the tribe, but Bethlehem, the city, and very specifically this unique family clan called the Ephrathites. This is the family line that David will be born from, and eventually we're going to also see that one day there's going to be a Redeemer born in Bethlehem of Judah, and this will be Jesus Christ. There will be kings born in Bethlehem, and there will be a Redeemer. There is first Boaz, and then there will be Jesus Christ. What I want us to see is the theme of Ruth begins with no king and Ruth is going to take us to a place where God is going to provide a shepherd king after his own heart. The graciousness of God to move this story from a a time of chaos and darkness and depravity and God is going to move his people to giving them a shepherd after his own heart. This is an amazing tale. Lastly, let's keep moving. I'm looking at the time. The fourth key to unlocking the book of Ruth is the family tragedy. In verse 3 it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malan and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons. This is a family tragedy that is beyond comprehension. It is hard to truly fathom how things had gone for Ruth, or excuse me, for Naomi and her life, and also her daughter-in-law's Ruth and Orpah. Now the narrator doesn't tell us things we might want to know. Like, how did Elimelech die? We don't know when he died. Was it soon after he uh, arrived? What we do know is that within a period of about 10 years of arriving in Moab, Elimelech dies, and his son's Malan and Kilian die. How close together did they die? We don't know. How did they die? We don't know. The author isn't really worried about providing us with those details. What he focuses us on is this tragedy that Naomi has been left to deal with. And so when we read verses 3 to 5, we can't imagine a worse scenario for Naomi or for her daughter-in-law's. we read that the tragedy number one is they left because of a famine. The first tragedy was the famine in Bethlehem. They leave lands, they leave family, they leave God's covenant people. And they go to move uh, and live in a land that worships a foreign god. Tragedy number two is Elimelech dies. Tragedy number three and four is Malon and Kilion both die. And they die having produced no heirs. There are no children. Which means this man Elimelech who has run away and left his family land now has no heir. Neither himself nor his sons have the ability to fulfill God's desire for them to have that property and be a part of Israel's descendants. This was a gift that God intended. God gave them the promised land. And they were to maintain that land and continue to pass that on. So I don't know if you could understand, but the worst Thing that could happen in Israel to a family is that there would be a family whose line was snuffed out there is in a sense no greater curse of God on your family that there would be no male heirs to continue on the line Naomi understands this maybe we don't understand that maybe for us I never think I don't have some kind of family properties back in the US that has been promised to me by God that I know I need to pass on so I don't think of, in terms of do I have a male heir But for the Jews not to have a male heir, and also for the women in uh, their lives, for for Orpah and Ruth to bear no children, we see a tragic story on every side. Naomi is a foreigner in a foreign land, living in the land of an enemy of Israel, a land that worships foreign gods. She has none of the rights of those people. By the way, Israel was the only country who gave rights to foreigners. They were the only place that made provision for those who were sojourning with them. So here is Ruth with no husband and no sons, and no way of providing for herself, no protection, no provision, and no male heirs. The question that the author is clearly inviting us to begin to to ask. And it's amazing the connection with Psalm 42 because it asks several times, where is your God? And that's the question that we are left asking is, where is God in this story? What will God do? Is there any hope in this story? Is this a hopeless story? And that's the last theme that I want uh, us to see in the story of Ruth. The last theme, the last broad brush stroke that we're going to see in this whole story is God's mercy in the midst of tragedy. God's mercy in the midst of tragedy. Despite how circumstances may seem, God has been unbelievably gracious to Naomi. And you say, where? Where? In the death of her husband? In the death of her sons? In the fact that she has no heirs? the fact that she lives in a foreign land where she has no rights and no protection and no provision, where is God in the midst of that? Well, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, as the story is ending, and as God has rewritten this amazing story, and we'll get there as we study it, but they say this about Ruth. And speaking to Naomi, they say, your daughter-in-law who loves you is worth more than seven sons. In the midst of this tragedy, God provides Naomi with this daughter-in-law who is lovingly faithful and who will not leave her side, who journeys with her to her homeland. It says, I will leave everything behind. Your God will be my God. Your place will be my place. I will go with you. And God begins to rewrite this story through this young Moabite woman who's not even an Israelite. That even in the midst of the greatest tragedy, we are going to see God's mercy in a way that we could have never predicted. So, let's just look at a conclusion. The question that I want us to be asking today, if we, just, if we move away from the book of Ruth, and I just look at you, and we had this prayer time today where we got to see just maybe a glimpse of some of the things that are happening right now, but let me just open the book of your life and let me just say, more than the prayer requests we heard today, Many of us have wrestled with difficult times or tragedy. And where I want to land this morning is, is there hope in the midst of my tragedy? I don't know what your family situation is, and not everybody has a terrible tragedy, but I know, very, as I look around, there are people that were raised without fathers in the home. I know there's people dealing with very difficult situations in the lives of their children. I know there are people who are dealing with shame, with guilt, from not only their actions, but the actions of those uh, who have affected them. The question that we have to ask, that we come to in Ruth, but we also need to apply to ourselves, is Is there hope in the midst of my tragedy? And let's just be honest. Sometimes that tragedy is a tiny little T. We're going through kind of a trial in our life. And sometimes that is capital T. Lost my husband. Lost my two sons. Living in a foreign land. I don't know where what's taking place in your life on the scale of small T tragedy to large 4T tragedy like Naomi. But here's what you will see. If the story of Ruth is any indication... There is no story that is hopeless. Every single one of us can find restoration and redemption under the wings of God. That is where this story will take us. There is no hopeless story. Every single story can find restoration and redemption, not in your own power, not in your own wisdom. Very specifically, I told you the title of this sermon series is where under the wings of God. God's hand is often hidden. But let me just assure you it is actively at work in your life and in your circumstances. And God is weaving your story which may seem insignificant on every account. Let me just tell you, unless we had the book of Ruth, there is no way Naomi would have said my life is in any way significant. Living in Moab with husbands that have died, worshiping Or being in a land of foreign gods, but God was weaving her story, and He weaves our stories into His one story of redemption. There is no story that gets left out. There is no story that is insignificant. Every story can find hope, restoration, and redemption under the wings of God. That is where Naomi will take, or Naomi. That is where Ruth will take us. And that is the journey we will see with Naomi. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word gives us hope. We are eager to study this beautiful book, this short story that we have from the time of the judges. God, remind us that in the midst of the chaos of not only the times of the judges, but in the chaos of the times now, you are actively at work, staying faithful to your promises. Remind us that there is no story that is hopeless, no matter whether our life seems like a tragic series of events. God, we look to you, the one who can redeem and restore, the one where we find healing under the wings of God. May each one of us find our place in this story. May each one of us know that our story is a part of your redemption story. Nobody's story gets left out. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, God. Amen.